Support for the podcast series Forgotten Prison comes from Gonzaga Law School and its Center for Civil and Human Rights, dedicated to enriching the educational experience of students and contributing to the practice of civil and human rights. Details at gonzaga.edu slash law. Thanks to Humanities Washington for their generous grant. All right. Starting the podcast, episode one. Paula, I don't know how to start. I don't know, Simone. I mean, there are like a thousand stories about McNeil Island. Um, we could tell, talk about the raccoons, the prison raccoons. Hmm. Maybe a little later. Well, we could talk about the mobsters turned school bus drivers. That's a good one, but I don't think we should start with that. How about, how about the baby grave? Paula, that is way too dark to start the podcast with. Um, you know what? We could tell the rowboat story. Hmm. The rowboat story. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Let's start with the rowboat story. Okay, so it was just a few days after the 4th of July in 1877 when prisoner William Taylor and two fellow inmates escaped from their island prison in Puget Sound. They caught the other two on the island, but he managed to get a boat and just kind of disappear into the sound. This is Dave Beals. He's the historian who told us the story. So guards had to pursue him via rowboat. So one guard... Of course, they, he's in a rowboat, too. Right, right yeah. yeah I think, <laughs> so it's a, it's, it's a high-speed rowboat. Exactly, yeah. So they don't know where he is and uh, can't find this guy, Taylor, anywhere. First, the guards head toward the mainland. They look in Stillicum and can't find him. They even hire two Native American trackers whom they often use to find escaped inmates. Still no luck. So one guard jumps back in the boat and starts rowing north. And saw Taylor up in Tacoma at Point Defiance Park on the shore. But Taylor saw him coming too. So Taylor jumps in his boat and they just go in this incredibly <laughs> slow speed rowboat chase <laughs> in Puget Sound. Remember O.J. Simpson and the White Bronco freeway chase? It's kind of like that, only in rowboats. Now, the guard in pursuit is rowing as fast as he can. And then uh, finally he catches up. They, they, somehow the guard didn't include this, but he just says caught him and apprehended him, which I don't know how that works. Once you <laughs> catch somebody... In, jumped right, into his rowboat. Right, once you pull up in a rowboat next to another rowboat, how do you bring the inmate back? But they brought inmate Taylor back uh, after several days of scouring the island and this absurd slow-motion rowboat chase through the sound. Once captured... Taylor was forced to row the guard back to McNeil Island Prison, where the inmate was once again locked up. From KNKX and the Washington State History Museum, this is Forgotten Prison. I'm Simone Alisea. And I'm Paula Whistle. That's just one story about McNeil Island. The prison there ran for 136 years, and it only closed in 2011. Not to mention the Special Commitment Center, which is still operating on the island. We'll get to that a little later. You know, the true story of inmate Taylor almost reads like fiction. Maybe it's because the big prison escape is kind of a popular genre. I'm getting you out of here. Burrows, roll it up. Happy hour's over. It's impossible. Not if you design the place, it isn't. 
I have to say, I watched four whole seasons of Prison Break. You know, I never understood how you could get four seasons out of breaking out of prison. The network execs actually said the same thing when the show first came out. But then it got so popular that they extended the first season and just kind of kept trying to recreate the magic. Really? But why do you think it's so compelling, this idea of someone escaping from prison? Why are we drawn to that? I mean, it is kind of a classic underdog story, right? Someone with no power fighting against tyranny and captivity. Right. I mean, you know, in these stories, we do identify with the inmate. But in real life, that's not really true. Think about inmate Taylor. If he escaped today, what would the headline be? Something like, um, escape convict apprehended near Tacoma. Yeah, and you definitely wouldn't get the same backstory you'd get from Hollywood. But, you know, given what we know about inmate Taylor, there definitely is a backstory. Yeah, what we know about inmate Taylor comes from these old logs the guards kept. It's kind of how they kept track of what happened at the prison. When I was looking through these journals, there's an escape attempt every few weeks to every few months. That's Dave Beals again. He's with the State Archives now, but he spent a lot of time doing research on this project for the Washington State History Museum, and he poured over those logs. You know, when Dave first told us this story, I immediately thought about another prison movie. What we've got here is failure to communicate. Is that Cool Hand Luke, by chance? Yeah, that's 1967. Paul Newman plays like this wisecracking inmate at a prison camp down south. But I guess I don't really get what that has to do with inmate Taylor in the rowboat. Well, for one, Luke and Taylor are both in prison for somewhat petty crimes. Well, I know Taylor. He was in this prison for basically skipping out on a job after he'd already been paid. Right. And Luke's on a chain gang for cutting parking meters off poles. So... Number two, both inmates like to swear. There's a, an entry where during mealtime, he called one of the guards a goddamn gutless son of a bitch. Yeah, well, that ought to be easy for a genuine son of a bitch. In the movie, Luke keeps getting thrown into the box. So it sounds like they're trying to break him. Right. Stay down. You're beat. You're going to have to kill me. When Taylor gets in trouble for swearing, he gets locked up by himself in his cell. And uh, he kept swearing, so he was put on this restricted diet of just water and bread until he apologized. And inmate Taylor went on for days refusing to say he was sorry. Finally, on I think day three or day four, he started getting pretty sick because it was winter and cold and wet and apologized. And they gave him food and he came back into the general population. And the next time Taylor's name pops up in the logs is when he tries to escape from McNeil Island. And there's similarities there, too. Taylor and the other two inmates escaped while they were on work duty, just like Luke. I'm shaking it, boss! Damn. He's gone. Get the dogs. In movies, you never root for them to catch the criminal who's escaping. I mean, I guess it's like we have two conflicting ideas of what prison is. On the one hand, we think prisons keep us safe. You know, it's where you send the bad guys. But, you know, when we hear a story about inmate Taylor or the movie Cool Hand Luke, we identify because on some level we understand or even fear the idea of being locked up with absolutely no freedom. Prisons are oppressive and worth resisting. Then on another level, we know... 
that the being locked up is being done in our name to keep society safe. Yeah, and I think there's probably a little truth in both of those ideas. It's what makes thinking about prison so messy. I think that makes it easy to kind of look away, to not think or talk about what happens in prison or why it happens. It makes them really easy to forget about. And that's why we want to talk about McNeil Island. McNeil is an especially forgotten prison. If you want proof, look no further than the state of the place. Simone and I got a rare opportunity to visit as part of this project with the Washington State History Museum. Oh, careful. Standing water with uh, slippery growth. Wow, it's like vines growing into the door. Remember when we said this prison closed in 2011? Well, when that happened, the state kind of just left it here. It's pretty much abandoned. And this isn't what you'd see at any prison that's been closed. When the state shut down McNeil, they did what's called a cold closure. It's when you just turn off the power and walk away. I, I, ha- I have to say, I feel like I'm in a haunted house right now. Haunted prison. Haunted prison, right. <laughs> I guess it's probably even scarier. It's like people here just vanished. You can still see signs of them everywhere. In the warehouse where inmates made furniture. So there's a whiteboard here and it's got a kind of creepy drawing on it. It says, this too shall pass. Or the old personnel files in the administration building. 95, 97. I wonder if someone, yeah. someone must have been looking for something. Like Just everyday signs of the human experience. Perfectly good roll of toilet paper there. I know, you, should, you might steal that. But still, it's shocking to see how much the place has fallen apart in less than a decade. The paint peeling from the walls and the way the blackberry bushes are taking over everything. And then there are the animals. God, there are just like dead birds everywhere. Oh, dead skeletons of dead birds. Which means they've been here for a minute. To really understand why, I think you first have to realize that McNeil has been forgotten many, many times. Throughout McNeil's history, it was always on the back burner, are always people were pretending they couldn't see it. Dave Beals again, the historian with the rowboat story. Basically every aspect of this island prison's history was a surprise. It's like McNeil found its way into every chapter of U.S. prison history, but was always in the shadow of something else. For whatever reason, McNeil Island hasn't really broken into pop culture, unlike, say, Alcatraz, that island prison in San Francisco Bay. Which is weird, because McNeil... It kind of served as this testbed for... Alcatraz, the rock. No one has ever escaped from this prison. This trailer is for the movie Escape from Alcatraz, made in 1979. Clint Eastwood is Frank Morris in Escape from Alcatraz. You see, when McNeil first opened in 1875, the fact that it was on an island wasn't really about stopping escapes, even though that's how we kind of think of island prisons today. It was really just where land was available. It would be decades before the feds would build a prison for the, quote, worst of the worst. But when they did decide that was a priority, the remoteness of McNeil served as a model for its more famous California counterpart. Alcatraz was the first prison of that idea that there needs to be a place that is inescapable, supposedly for the largest escape risk, worst of the worst. And 
Then when they needed to open it, they brought in four, 14 inmates from McNeil Island first. I've talked to dozens of people in Seattle and Tacoma, and almost everyone has heard of Alcatraz. But even those who have lived here for a while knew little, if anything, about McNeil Island. I mean, I grew up here, and that was true for me, too. Alcatraz gets so much name recognition around the country. I think part of it is Hollywood. That Clint Eastwood movie is just the start. In the 60s, you had the Birdman of Alcatraz. Who, by the way, was at McNeil first. And then there's recent stuff, too. Michael Bay made a movie called The Rock, which involves breaking into the old prison. J.J. Abrams also had a sort of sci-fi series that reimagined Alcatraz's closure. (laughs) You're really into prison movies. But, you know, it probably helps that you can still go there and see Alcatraz. This is from a video posted to YouTube in 2016, and it's what Alcatraz, the tourist attraction, sounds like today. Now, in the video, you see glossy signs and displays that lay out the history in a way that's easy to understand. The place is crowded with all kinds of people. Compare that to McNeil, whose history needs some cobbling together and where a visit involves background checks and a flashlight. Of course, it's so dark, we can't see it. (laughs) The prison is rotting, and McNeil Island remains totally off-limits to the general public. Which seems odd when you think about the facts. McNeil was a prison long before Alcatraz, and it remained one well after Alcatraz closed. Add to that the fact that McNeil was one of the country's founding federal prisons. All right, Simone, we should probably explain what we mean by founding federal prison. Well, for a long time in the U.S., prisons were mostly overseen by local jurisdictions, state prisons, county jails, that kind of thing. If you did commit a federal crime, you kind of just got placed wherever you could fit. There weren't exactly a lot of standards or oversight. But around the turn of the century, the federal government was starting to think maybe they should be more systematic in how they investigate and punish criminals. The FBI also got started around this time. The FBI set the standard for modern law enforcement. Under J. Edgar Hoover, it started to keep better track of criminals, expanding the use of fingerprints and analyzing evidence, all the things we expect any police department to do today. The first federal prisons also set standards. As ideas about prison architecture and practices have changed, the feds have often been the model for the states. When you think of those big tiered cell houses or the striped uniforms, those all came from the early federal prison days. Congress passed the Three Prisons Act in 1891. It designated the first three federal prisons, Atlanta, Leavenworth, Kansas, and somehow, way out in the Wild West, McNeil Island. It means McNeil was part of the foundation of a prison system that we still use today. That's McNeil Island's legacy, even if not that many people know about it. Despite its importance, McNeil was a prison no one really wanted. Looking over early records, you learn that it only became a federal prison in part because when Washington became a state, leaders rejected it as a state penitentiary. In 1904, they tried to give it to the state of Washington again, and again, Washington turned it down. At that point, the feds kind of had to commit, but they still were never that interested in running McNeil Island Prison. Dave told me once that he thinks one reason McNeil kind of falls under people's radar is because the federal government tried to close it so many times, people just assumed it wasn't functioning. 
when the late 70s rolled around, it really looked like the prison was going to close. But it didn't, of course. Washington state took it over and McNeil officially became a state prison in 1981. There were a lot of factors as to why that happened. But honestly, a lot of it came down to the election of 1980. The message Ronald Reagan has carried to America is one of confidence. Whatever else history may say about my candidacy, I hope it will be recorded. But I appeal to our best hopes, not our worst fears. I remember the election of 1980. There was a recession going on, and of course you had the Cold War. People were looking for change. Same was true in Washington state. The Democratic governor, Dixie Lee Ray, had become pretty unpopular. Eventually, voters picked Republican John Spellman. And if you're wondering what this has to do with McNeil, I can tell you the prison was a major campaign issue during the 1980 gubernatorial election. One of the maybe the top five issues in the governor's race. Steve Excel was the chief of staff to former Governor Spellman, and he worked on Spellman's 1980 campaign. He's now the state archivist. Spellman and others went after Dixie Lee Ray early on, saying she failed to deal with bad conditions at the state's prisons. And so it got a lot of ink during her four years as governor. It got a lot of ink during the governor's race. The whole prison overcrowding issue was front page news. So it got a lot, a lot of notoriety at the time. Things were really bad in Washington's prisons. There was overcrowding, as many as six men per two-man cell by some accounts. There were lawsuits and federal court orders. And at the Walla Walla State Pen, there were riots. Two guards were killed. Others were afraid to come to work. That's where McNeil comes in. Come 1980, everyone agreed at the very least, the state needed more prison beds. Then you have the federal government about to vacate a working prison on McNeil Island. For a lot of people, taking it over just seemed like the obvious solution. It was obvious to everyone except Governor Ray, and she just seemed to have a, a, a fixed view that she wasn't going to budge on it. I think everyone thought she was wrong. I don't even recall anyone else speaking up other than Governor Ray for opposing taking over McNeil Island. It sounds reasonable, but Dixie Lee Ray had some practical reasons for opposing the idea. News accounts from the time documented the public fight pretty well. But to understand the details of Ray's position, the best source was a recorded post-election interview she did with the Tacoma News Tribune, found with her archives at the Hoover Institute at Stanford. And Paula's right. A lot of what she said makes sense. For example, she said the buildings were out of date and would cost too much to fix. It is too expensive either for continued operation or for renovation, because it would have to be remodeled and brought up to standard. She also understood that things inherently cost more to run on an island. Any operation on an island is more expensive when everybody has to be transported, every material, every bit of uh, everything that is used, uh, back and forth. Those were two reasons the Fed said they were trying to close McNeil in the first place. But Steve Excel is right about one thing. Nearly everyone disagreed with her. All of the other candidates for governor challenged her on this issue. Even in her own party, she lost in the primary. An incumbent governor losing in the primary is a pretty big deal. Voters might have been thinking about a lot of things, but it seems like they made themselves clear when it came to the prison. 
if you aren't directly connected to the prison system, it can seem far away. But often, a prison is right there. This one was in South Puget Sound, and what happened was just a matter of who got elected. It makes you realize that a local prison or jail really isn't all that different from your neighborhood school. What do you mean? Well, think about it. When you vote, education's often a top issue, and who you vote for can affect funding for schools. These are tax dollars. You know, you care about how your money's being used. So the same is true for prisons. Yeah, and I guess it's also the people. We care about kids in school because we know they're going to grow up and be part of the world. Well, theoretically, it's the same with prisons. Most people in prison are going to be released back into the community. But I think it kind of goes back to our conflicting feelings about people who commit crimes. You know, something about the 1980 election and the state takeover of McNeil never quite sat right with me. What's that? So the feds wanted to shut it down because it was expensive, right? Mm -hmm. But when the state closed the prison 30 years later, they cited the same reasons. And I can't help but think, shouldn't we have known better? Shouldn't we have thought about that before building new cell houses and investing in that space? It's one of the things I had to ask Steve Excel, who talked about how much pressure there was back then. So even though it's more expensive to operate a small Navy to, to serve your, your correctional facility, uh, it, it could happen fast. And speed was somewhat of the essence since we were going to pour money into new facilities anyway. Was there a perception that it would be somewhat transitional? That like, did it seem at the time like, okay, we need to relieve this overcrowding issue right now, we'll open this up and then reassess? Or, you know, was it always like, okay, here's our new prison and this is going to be a prison? Well, in April of 2011, when they announced the closure, I was surprised. Really? Yeah, I, I did not see that coming. In 2011, the island just went quiet. State leaders say they closed the McNeil Island Correction Center because it was expensive to run. The decision came at a time when the state was desperately looking for places to cut. It was the middle of another recession. McNeil's closure was authorized the same year lawmakers slashed state funding to public education. Estimates differ, but the state said it was going to save millions of dollars closing McNeil, and the feeling was that inmates and correctional officers could simply be transferred to other prisons around Washington. What might surprise you is there are a lot of people who are upset the prison closed. And it's not just that they closed it that rankers critics, it's how the state did it. Again, they did what's called a cold closure. That means the buildings weren't mothballed. They didn't drain the pipes or cover the windows or preserve the structures at all. They'll probably never be used again. Even new cell houses the state had spent millions on were just left for nature to reclaim. The blackberry bushes are starting to overtake the doors. They just walked away. The prison is decaying and you're probably never going to see it. It's completely off limits to the general public. So who cares? After all, it was a prison. Bad things happened here. But this is what we forget. Prisons are made up of people. Everyone we've spoken to has strong memories of this place. 
the people who were locked up, the people who worked here, even kids who grew up on the island. It was a real tight community where we didn't lock our doors. It was a very different place to grow up than like downtown Tacoma. There, there was something, romantic's not the right word, but it, it's, you know, the, the history of the place. It's just steeped in history. We were all out there together, being on this island working in a prison. It was just special. Those were the best years of my adult life out there. I um, went to the yard and, uh, and it was summertime and I sat on a bench and looked out at the water and said, you know, I could do my time here. It really was a million dollar view. You could get lost in your head, you escape the prison. But as with everything on McNeil, it's complicated. You know, we could see Puget Sound from the yard. We could see some of the scenery and some of the wildlife, but I think that's like, you know, the scenic environment for the cage you're being kept in. You know, the cage can still be in a nice surrounding environment, but you're still in a cage. Remember earlier when we mentioned the Special Commitment Center? Not to mention the Special Commitment Center, which is still operating on the island. That's what most people now think of when they think of McNeil Island. The Special Commitment Center is where the state keeps, quote, sexually violent predators. These people have done their prison time, but they've been deemed too dangerous to release into society. Technically, the Commitment Center is not a prison, but it is closed off behind multiple layers of razor wire. That's where we head next in episode two of Forgotten Prison. Forgotten Prison is produced by me, Simona Licea, and me, Paula Whistle. Our editor is Aaron Hennessy. Additional editing from Bethany Denton, who's also our mix engineer. Bill Anschell does our music, and Parker Miles Blome is the man behind our website, ForgottenPrison.org. That's also where you can find his amazing photos of the place. Kari Plogue is our digital content manager. Matt Martinez is our director of content. Our logo was created by Adrian Flores. Thanks so much to our partners at the Washington State History Museum, especially audience engagement director Mary Michael Stump and lead curator Gwen Whiting. Be sure to check out the accompanying exhibit about McNeil Island at the museum in Tacoma. That exhibit runs through May 2019. More details at ForgottenPrison.org. We also get some financial support from Humanities Washington. Thanks also to everyone who helped out with research for this episode, especially the Washington State Archives, the Hoover Institution, Eric Heinitz with the State Department of Corrections, and all the people who have lived on McNeil who shared their stories with us, especially Becca Ritchie, Chris Hubert, Judy Howard, Brian Funk, Mark Bolf, and Paul Wright. Special thanks to the NPR Story Lab and training teams, and we also want to thank all our colleagues at KNKX for their support. 
Be sure to subscribe and leave a review of the podcast and please reach out. You can find our information at knkx.org. That website is also where you'll find all the news and music we have to offer at KNKX. And it's where you can make a pledge to support the in-depth journalism that you hear in this podcast. Thanks for listening. This is Forgotten Prison.